So is there a God is a pretty fundamental question for us to ponder today. And as we're going through our series, Exploring God, to ask these questions from different perspectives, different angles. Last week, we looked at, uh, does life have purpose? Today, we're going to look, well, at the fundamental question that undergirds all of our discussion, is there a God? In our beginning video, we saw some people ask that question, maybe sort of hope that to be true. One person said that they were, she was actually one with God, and another said it'd be really awesome if there were a God. And we'll talk some about how, specifically today, the invisible God reveals himself and his character. And I'll explain a bit of that as we walk that through. But the reality is people are unsure what they think about God. You know, imagine when you're a child, you first learn that there's somebody who's the creator of all the universe who you can't see, but he does exist. You may have questions about what he's like, what he does, how he acts, how he thinks. Maybe you've got questions about the Bible. Here's some actual questions that kids asked in letters they wrote to God. Let me share with a few of them to you. Dear God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? Nobody will tell me. Love, Allison. Fair enough. God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in my family, and I can't even do it. I get that. Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? That's a good one. Do you really mean, God, do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm really going to fix my brother. I like that about that. I can relate to that one. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It worked with my brother. I mean, so there are different ways people look at and say, how do we understand who God is? Are there questions that we have? Well, let me just say to you, this is a safe place to ask questions. We're exploring God together the next several weeks. We're two weeks into a seven-week series. So for the remaining five weeks, I want to encourage you to come. Maybe you're not yet sure there is a God. Well, journey with us over the next several weeks as we have this discussion together. My name is Ed Stetzer. I'm the interim teaching pastor here at the Moody Church, and you've come to a place where people seek to give glory to God, so make much of Him where lives are changed, but maybe you're unsure. Again, this is a safe place to be unsure. We're going to look at the Bible in just a minute, but in looking at the Bible, we have to be careful because if we use the Bible to prove who God is, we're actually in a circular argument. So are there things outside of the Bible that point to who God is? Well, I think for us to have these conversations, we have to begin with the understanding that there's kind of a popular notion that science has taught us to outgrow God. I mean, there's a time when everybody was maybe a maybe a living in a tribe or a or a or a group of people, a people group. I think of my ancestors in Ireland who who maybe they um, millennia or two ago they they would see the, the the storms and they would see the sea and they would see the sun and they they came up with superstitions, Celtic myths that might say here's who uh, who here's who's out there and what he she or it is doing. And over time, the idea was that we would outgrow that. Science would help us to understand that storms are caused by by different things, but where weather patterns come together. We, we know an earthquake is caused by the moving of tectonic plates. We, we know that fire is something that can both be made and contained. And so do we really need an understanding of God now that we've outgrown our superstitions? Has, well, has science disproven God? Actually, what's interesting is, is a whole lot of scientists say, no, it is not. Now, why does that matter? Well, first of all, a whole lot of Americans believe in God. Let's take a look. This doesn't mean God is real, but let's take a look at some statistics that might point to that. We asked them, uh, do, do, this is a Pew study, belief in God, the percent of adults who say, well, I believe in God and I'm absolutely certain. That's 63% 
of Americans. 20% say, I believe in God and I'm fairly certain. Believe in God, well, not too, you know, too, too, not at all, not, not too much or not, not certain or not much at all. Believe in God, I don't know, and don't believe in God. And it goes all the way down to don't know if they believe in God. And what we find is, is that 83% of Americans somewhat or certainly believe that there actually is a God. So why would so many people? Well, it could be the God delusion, as one book by a famous atheist writes. But 83% are fairly or absolutely certain they believe in God. That's a pretty high number for an advanced culture like ours, right, where we have science and realities all around us. So the question I want to ask for us today as we explore if there is a God is, is, is this, is, is can we know the invisible God? Does he reveal himself and his character at all to us? So we're going to look at today, is there evidence for God? Is evidence for his character. Who is God? What does this mean for me? Now, I want you to know, when I speak of God being invisible, I'm going to, we're going to later in our series speak about the time where the invisible God took on flesh and walked among us. But that's not going to be our primary focus here. That's going to come later in our series. So let's just start with really simply number one on our outline, and it's this. Is there evidence for God? Is there evidence for for God. It's a fair question. Now, I do want you to take your Bible out with me because the Bible makes a claim outside of itself. Now, if you're here for the first time or the second time, then you don't have a Bible. No worries. There are Bibles in front of you in one of the seats. It's this blue book here. And if you'll turn to page 456. Now, this is written in the Old Testament, which Christians believe there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament's called the Hebrew Scriptures. And in there, we have a reminder that there is evidence indeed for God. Let's take a look at Psalm chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is heard. Right, it's not heard, excuse me. Uh, Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, so the Bible tells us, right, this is someone who writes, this is called a psalmist, writes a psalm. So the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the Bible points outside of the Bible actually to creation to say, if this is creation, there must indeed be a creator. So when we do come to the Bible, it assumes that we have a knowledgeable belief in God. The Bible's not generally an apologetics book. Now, apologetics isn't from the word um, apology the way we think of it today. It means a defense, right? So the Bible's written to the people of God so they might grow and know him better. It tells the full story of God's redemptive plan. But the reality is it's not organized like an apologetics textbook trying to defend the faith. Though I will tell you, you can hear many beautiful stories where someone starts by seeking to read the Bible to disprove 
who God is and ends up becoming a Christian. C.S. Lewis, the author, for example, of most famously for us, probably The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, but his most famous Christian book is actually called Mere Christianity, where he speaks of these very truths. So the psalmist uses the natural world, things we experience, to give evidence of God. Heaven, sky, the sun racing across the sky all point to a creator. So let me just spend a few minutes here, and I want to talk about some things that I believe point to the evidence of this invisible God. I believe the invisible God has revealed himself, and we can see his fingerprints all around us if our eyes are open to it. Matter of fact, we sang just a minute ago a song called indescribable. I kind of felt bad listening to the music today because Tim has largely preached my entire message through the music he has chosen today. So we can jump in singing indescribable. Well, let me try to describe the indescribable because that word, ironically, after being called indescribable, has lyrics that describe. So let's take a look at it. It says this, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings. And then it goes, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing God. So there is a sense that, well, I'll just go through. Let me share just as we go through. They're not on your screen. One of the reasons that I believe that there is an invisible God seeking to reveal himself to us is in creation itself. Why are things sometimes so beautiful? Now, why, why, why would we look around at a sunset? Why would we look at our children? Why might we look at our, our, uh, a beautiful panoramic view? And something within us says, something amazing has happened here. My, I have three dogs, and they're going to make frequent appearance in my sermon today. Um, I don't like two of them, to be perfectly honest. Now, please don't send me letters. Um, one of them is really the dumbest dog that has ever been born. Yesterday, I went to open the door for it, and it ran into the screen door before I opened the screen door. Okay, that dog, that's my youngest. I have three daughters. Each of them wanted a dog. Somehow, I went along with this idea, and every day, my wife reminds me that this was not a good choice. My first dog is actually, of our kids, is actually named Princess, and Princess is basically a cat, not a dog. Because uh, a cat doesn't come when you call it, but Princess has a little extra. Princess hears you call her, looks at you and says, and then goes wherever she wants to go. <laughs> so she's basically a cat. And then there's the middle dog named Molly that I actually do like. Now, why does this matter? Can I just tell you, none of my dogs, Molly's the really smart dog, right? Princess, little less so, rebellious spirit, needs the Lord in her life. And then finally, <laughs> Sophie, the dog that's dumb as a dog, uh, she sits, there. if I take the, all of them outside and we sit in the yard and it's a beautiful night and we look up at the stars, none of them look to one another and say, that's the evidence of a creator. Now, but something goes on in us because we are aware that something significant has been created. So my dogs aren't sitting around saying, look at the beauty of nature. Let me ponder that there may be something greater than me. No, yesterday, my oldest dog ate the garbage and poured it all over the kitchen table. She off the table onto the floor. 
So I'm, well, I'm listening to it. This was actually last night. I'm listening to beautiful worship music while I'm putting the final touches on the message that I share with you today, and my dog is eating the garbage. Now, why does that matter? Because there's something, there has to be something out there. We know it. The rest of creation doesn't. We know it, and there is. See, this really matters. Now, I want to talk some about this. So we start with creation. But I want to talk with the second thing. If you don't want to jot notes down, put down creation. Put down fine-tuning. I want you to know that the world in which you live, the universe in which you live, is remarkably fine-tuned. And I'm going to talk some science. And I want you to know that I'm not a scientist. This is really important. But I know scientists, so I consulted with them for this talk today. Now, I do have an undergraduate degree in biology and chemistry with a focus specifically on the natural sciences. However, it was actually done back in the days before we had discovered fire and the wheel. So it's a long time ago, and I don't remember all of it, to be perfectly honest. But I do know that in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had the opportunity to rely on the degree I spent so much money in student loans to earn, so I'm very excited. I have a high level of investment in the next six minutes of our sermon. Now, I'm actually going to quote from you. I actually contacted uh, Rhiannon Blau. Now, you don't necessarily know her. She's come to church here several times. She's a professor uh, alongside me at Wheaton College. And here's what her bio says. Meet Rhiannon Blau, Wheaton's newest visiting instructor of physics. Before coming to Wheaton, she was modeling the meteoroid environment for NASA. Now she's helping Wheaton students discover the beauty of God through an understanding of physics. Now, again, she, I, I know Rihanna super well. We actually live on the same street. Um, we teach together. Uh, she has an asteroid named after her by NASA. She is cooler than you and cooler than me. <laughs> now, I know cooler than you, me, is not that high of a bar, but nevertheless, she is. At the same time, she is the biggest nerd you've ever met. She has on her bio on Instagram, space nerd, right? Uh, but she's also a deeply committed Christian. And so I asked her to share some of her notes with me, and she did so, and she, she shared some of her notes and, and wanted me to mention, too, that it's connected to Hugh Ross, who talks about the creator and the cosmos. But here's some things about the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, I want you not to miss this because we might get a little technical here, but it's important because if this is true and you're not yet sure who God is or that he exists, these next few minutes might be the most important minutes of your entire life and validates the student loans that I paid for 10 years. So let's take a look at them together. See, the constants of nature are so delicately balanced, I'm reading from her, that if many of them were either larger or smaller, there'd be no life in the universe. There are four main forces or interactions in the universe that hold things together. She goes right to physics, that's her field. You're familiar with gravity. You're actually experiencing gravity right now. That's why you're not floating away during the message. The other three are electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force. So gravity acts over a large, potentially infinite distance over the universe. Strong nuclear is responsible for the binding of atomic uh, nucleus. And then an electromagnetic force is a force that acts between electrically charged particles it shows itself in things like electrical fields, magnetic fields, and light, right? So don't miss this. So just like gravity pulls anything together that has mass, the electromagnetic force basically allows charges to attract or repel one another. Magnets, you're seeing the electromagnetic force at work. But here's the thing that's fascinating. All four of these forces are so remarkably fine-tuned 
to, so that there might be life, to create life. There's life. You can't have these things in, without these things coming together perfectly. Now, why does that ultimately matter? Well, for example, if the strong nuclear force was stronger than it is, protons and neutrons would want to stick together so much that only heavy elements would exist, no hydrogen, which is actually what we're mostly made of. Or the strength of gravity determines how hot the nuclear forces in the core of stars will burn. If it were too weak, if it were just too weak, protons and neutrons would not stick together. Only one element would exist in the whole universe, hydrogen. So we we see, if, and it goes on, if gravitational force were larger, stars would be so hot, they would burn up too quickly and erratically to support life in our solar system. She goes on to say, if how delicate is this balance? This is straight from her lecture. If it were just 2% weaker or 0.3% stronger than it actually is, life would be impossible at any time and at any place in the universe. Now, why do these things matter, right? Anthony Kenny, who's an agnostic who teaches at Oxford, thinks this is one of the hardest things to come to terms with. As an atheist, he used to be an atheist. He was an atheist before declaring himself an agnostic. Basically, the question was, how many constants in the universe are so finely tuned for life? If they were the slightest bit larger or the slightest bit smaller, life could not exist. So he said, I can't be an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Why does that matter? Let me give you a quote from a scientist, perhaps one of the most famous scientists in the world right now. He said this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. Now, what a strange phrase. That's actually from a scientist named Francis Collins. Now, maybe you've never heard of Francis Collins, but he's actually the head of the National Institutes of Health, a government agency here. And he's a physician geneticist who discovered the genes associated with diseases and led something called the Human Genome Project. He's now the director of the National Institutes of Health, a world-renowned scientist and a committed Christian. See, he says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, former atheist, by the way, says, when you look to the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. I want you not to miss this. If you're going to look at science and you're going to look at the world around us, it looks like somebody set it up just perfectly so we could exist. Or facts about the uniqueness of the earth, right? The sun's a single star. Earth has just the right distance. It's in the habitable zone, right? Limits determined by, by what we call greenhouse gases and refrigerator effects. And the size of the earth is just the right size, formed with significant but not too much large atmosphere. It has a moon that produces significant tides and stabilizes the earth's spin axis, right? Jupiter and the other giant planets remove asteroids and comets from earth-crossing trajectories, right? But, but Jupiter also planted a, a plant, kept the planet from forming, resulting in asteroids, and plate tectonics contribute to climate stability being an important part of the CO2 cycle. Listen, all of this comes together to point to, this is actually from the State University of New York, a thesis research project. All this comes together pointing to the fact that this place is perfectly prepared for God to do something special in creating us. Now, Romans 1.20 puts it this way. It's not on the screen. It says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So here they are. Paul writes here, so they are without excuse. 
So, so again, God is revealing himself. Now, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to look at when we look at suffering, and I get that. We're going to talk about suffering in this series. If right now all your guard's going up saying, well, what about suffering? Well, how, then how, what about Jesus? I mean, if there's a creator out there, maybe I should be a deist. That God sort of created all this, spun the earth on its axis. I believe in a God, but he's not involved in everyday life. Well, keep walking with us as we go through this. But, but what we got to understand is significant reality points to the fact that there was and is a creator. You may or may have not noticed it's cold here today, not necessarily in the building. It's warm, filled with fellowship, and might I add, a heating system. But if you go outside, it's pretty cold. I mean, it's like cold, cold. It's colder than a legalist heart outside right now today. <laughs> and that's cold. Now, Lake Michigan is too big to freeze over. It doesn't freeze. It freezes in the sides of it, but doesn't freeze over. But did you know that even in that reality, we point to something God planned? Now, if you're in physics or a field of science, what you know is, I mean, all liquids can be frozen, but what happens to them is when they get frozen, they all become heavier than the liquid that they were. They become more dense, is how we put that. So heavier by volume. Water is actually the opposite, and because of that, life exists. If water were not the opposite, what would happen is things would freeze, they'd go to the bottom, it would freeze up from the bottom up, nothing would live, everything would die, even water itself with its very strange character, that it expands when it's frozen and comes to the top, makes it possible. It's as if the universe was waiting for us. So as you think, well, I don't believe in God. Well, what are the reasons? Don't let science be the reason you don't believe in God. For me, one of the reasons I believe in God is science. There's some, there has to be someone out there, and there is. What about conscience, right? Conscience, right? So why do I care about other people? You say, Ed, there are some people who don't care about other people. Yes, but they're outliers. There is a sense that there's something going on. Why do we care about stuff? Why do we care about people? Why do we care uh, that things are right? Why do we care about justice? Why does this matter? My dogs don't. I was, uh, remember we were, Jacqueline, my middle child, she's the one who loves all the animals. And there was Princess, the oldest dog, you know, I mean, the cat, basically, the oldest dog. And one day, Jacqueline was introducing Princess to a hamster. Princess was smiling, being pet, wagging her tail, and then went home and ate the hamster. <laughs> True story. Ate the hamster. Jacqueline's, wah! Princess, now afraid, runs away, because she's a cat. Disappears to finish the hamster. Don't send me letters. It's the circle of life. And I could tell you, explaining that to my crying daughter didn't do me any good. Honey, it's the circle of life. You're horrible, Dad. But the reality is, is the dog has no conscience, right? The dog, I don't, this is a little secret. Your dog primarily likes you because you feed the dog. Now, I wish, I wish that one day I would have my children as excited as when I get home as when my dogs are. But they're not excited because they want to sit and look at the stars and they enjoy my presence and talk about the presence of God in the universe. They're hungry. And I get that. 
But people say, well, we're just kind of evolved animals. That's the totality of who we are. Well, somewhere we must have evolved a conscience unless there's a lawgiver who created all things and in creating us specially and differently implanted in us a conscience that we find in all peoples everywhere. Sometimes that conscience is, is seared. Sometimes that conscience is lost. But in cultures around the world, people have a conscience. They care about you. Can I just tell you that, that even after after princess ate the hamster, they, the other dogs didn't come and say, that was unjust. <laughs> you should not have done that. But that's what happens, right? We're, there's somebody out there who has, is a lawgiver and has created that law for us. And we know this. Let's, I mean, let's be serious for just a moment. As our whole city was, was caught up in the questions of justice this past week in the shooting and death of Laquan McDonald. Where, where people were asking questions, well, is this justice? Is that justice? Is, is this right? Is this wrong? Because people care about, and when they see injustice, they want that right. And can I just tell you, that is a uniquely human trait that God has given to us, all of us, those who follow Christ and don't follow Christ. See, there has to be someone out there, and there is, and there is. Let's look on. I'm just sharing some of the things for me that are so significant that remind me. Another is prophecy. I look to the Old Testament and how much it points to what Jesus does and who he is. Born in Bethlehem is a prophecy. His, his bones not broken when he's taken down a cross, a prophecy. I go over and over again. There are hundreds upon hundreds of things that the Old Testament says that's written before Jesus that's going to happen in the New Testament that records those prophecies fulfilled. I can't look at those and not say that there has to be someone out there and there, and there is. Or maybe for me, this is just a a simple one. Can I just tell you, when I see the life change that has taken in place in so many lives, I've sat next to some people who are the most horrible people you have ever met. Their conscience was lost to the darkness. Jesus changed them and saved them, and I see in them something miraculous happens. See, and when you see that life change in my own life, right? My own life. Don and I were just talking recently about the families we came out of, the brokenness, the, 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 the struggles and the troubles and how stunning it was. And, and we come out of it not perfect by any means, but Jesus has worked in our lives in such a way that it's hard to describe the change that happened in one generation in our lives unless there's someone out there. And there is. But he's not just out there. I'm jumping ahead to future episodes of Explore God, but there's someone in here. Now, why do those things matter? Well, I wanna remind you that, back to the science question, don't, 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 don't believe the lie that Christians are anti-science. That's not necessarily true, there are some who are, but I'll make a short a mention of the fact that I actually participated in a book on this very subject that the National Association of Evangelicals put out. And several of us here, I'm one of the authors of this, and it's called When God and Science meet, surprising discoveries of agreement. Several authors you might recognize there, John Ortberg, you pastor in our town, several others as well. Um, why? Why do this? Because here's the deal. I don't want you to fall into the trap that if you think about science, you got to stop believing in God. And I don't want you to be fooled by the thought that science has disproved the existence of God. I want you to jump in. If that's your question, jump in and we've got resources. If you go to exploregod.com, we've got all kinds of resources that'll help you with those very questions. Now, some of you are doing the math and you see that I'm about 20 plus minutes into my sermon and that's point one. 
So there's points two and point three. So point two is in conclusion. No, it's not really. Because I do think it's worth noticing and asking the question, what is God's character? Is there evidence for God? Well, what is God's character? Because evidence for God could make him the divine watchmaker, right? Who sort of sets it up, spins it, it kind of goes, he then leaves it alone. It's what we call deism. It's the idea that there is a God, but he's not involved in the day-to-day life. Now listen, I want you to hear this. God is not intimidated by the questions that you have. You may say, well, I asked somebody in Sunday school and they see intimidated by it. You see, let me just tell you something about us Christians, right? Us Christians sometimes think that it's our job to defend God's reputation at all costs. And when we don't know the answer, we pretend that you're asking the wrong question. That's not right. Okay, here's the reality is you come up to me, if you come up to me afterwards and ask about molecular bonds, I'm going to say, you need to call Rhiannon Blau because I don't know the answer to that. Now, Why? Because there's something about God that in understanding it, his character is deep, complex, vast, and mysterious. There are many passages of scripture that help us to see who he is. Psalm 30 verses four and five is one that shows some of the beautiful paradoxes of God's character. Look at Psalm 30, beginning at verse four and five. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. Now you could say all of those things with a distant, uninvolved God, but then it says, for his anger is but for a moment. So yes, God does get angry, and that anger comes and is directed at sin, and so that sin separates us from God, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So if there is a God, and if this God is indeed God that we speak of here, You say, well, what's he like? Well, he does acknowledge that sin and wrong and injustice and the fact that you sin and I sin, that does indeed give him anger. And his anger or his wrath is directed at that reality, but that anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Here we see that his grace compared to the brevity of his anger, his grace can be evident and experienced in your life and mine. Matter of fact, look at Exodus 34, 6, right? It says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because maybe you've heard all you know about God is he seems mad all the time. Can I just tell you, as a follower of Jesus, that's not how I experience God at all. I experience the beauty of his grace, his love, his faithfulness, and more. Say, how, how is that then the case? Because it says God is angry in the Old Testament. Why? Angry because of sin and injustice, right? Because he's perfect and holy. Those can't be in his presence. So Ephesians, which is in the New Testament, you don't need to turn there. I'll just put it on the screen. says this, but God being rich in mercy, those four words change everything. If the very God who hung the sun and the moon is rich in mercy, you are in a good place if you'll respond to him. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God's character is mercy. God's motive is love. God's action is to bring life, to forgive you of that sin. So if this God of all the universe exists, and you may notice that I started with proofs that were universally true, that there was indeed a God, and then but I ended with prophecy because it points to that God not only does exist, but his character is mercy. And Jesus has come 
to save us and to change us. So where do we go from here? You see the invisible God reveals himself and his character. And the question is, how do we respond? Well, that comes with a huge issue, right? Who, number three, who is God? Who is God? Okay, so now if you've walked with me, and again, you don't have to be there yet, and maybe you'll never get there, but that's the conversation we're having with Explore God. That's why your friends invited you. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus and you didn't invite a friend, we're doing a wonderful job sharing for your friends who are not here. So let's invite them next week. Why? Who is God? So we look at this, and actually in Ephesians chapter 1, we get some of the answer to that question. Look at what it says. Paul, right? You've heard of St. Paul. This is him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he writes to the saints. Saints is a word for Christians in that day. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that phrase, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's who we believe in. So it's not a generic God who's just the creator, but it says God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, to be, blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's almost as if the universe was set up for us. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in this short uh, passage, it's actually the longest run-on sentence in the Bible. You don't get to write long on se- run-on sentences, but Paul the Apostle can. There are three persons mentioned, isn't there? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we don't believe just in a generic creator God, though we believe in a creator God. The invisible God reveals himself and his character, and when he reveals himself, we as Christians believe that he reveals himself as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Why? There's a working together for you to save you and sustain you. This is who God is. The invisible God reveals himself and his character. This is who God is. Look at Matthew chapter 3. 16 and 17, when Jesus was baptized, that's God the Son, Jesus, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now again, I've moved rather very rapidly from there exists a God and I've laid out evidences and I've laid out information that helps us with that, but it ultimately comes to who is this God? So yes, God exists. Most people believe that to be the case in America. But you see, God's character is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. We see God's character is filled with his mercy. His motive is love and his action towards us is to bring us life. He made us so that we might forever praise him. So there is one God, but eternally existing in three persons. So what does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? Well, here's what it boils down to. There's someone out there, right? And there is. We are created to be connected and united to this God. 
What does this mean for me? Isaiah tells us. It speaks about the reality that we are made for everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, right? This is, this is us. Now, why does that matter? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger, right? Creatures not born with desires unless satisfaction where they exist. A baby feels hunger as well. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. So these things come together to point to this, C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were. See, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to know and don't be afraid to explore the reality that you were made for another world. This universe perfectly fine-tuned for us as if it were waiting for us. And yet in the midst of all that, there, there's a lot of people who don't yet know Jesus. You know part of why, part of why that is, there's a lot, of, a lot of religious people have done a lot of dumb religious things. A lot of religious people are kind of bad uh, examples or publicity or advertising for the faith. I remember sharing with a woman on a plane not that long ago, and she said, yeah, I, she was searching spiritual things, spiritual realities. She said, I, yeah, I experienced Christianity for two years in high school, and man, those people are just crazy. And of course, I want to stay there and say, um, yeah, I've actually met some like that as well. But I said this, but what if, what if that experience that you had is just that, a bad experience, and instead the God who is true, the God of all the universe who loved you and sent Jesus to come for you, what if there's something more and you ran into some foolishness, but you might want to consider again the truth of this faith? So I don't know where you are or how you respond, but if we believed in the existence of God who truly is, how would that change our lives? If this God, was the invisible God, reveals himself and his character, and in his character we find mercy and love and, and holiness because he cannot tolerate sin, would that not change everything? It's changed everything for a whole lot of people in this room and those of us who are joining us online. And my question for you is, if it's true, I want to ask one simple thing of you primarily. Why don't you take five more weeks and consider it with us as we go through Explore God together. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to be reminded of the goodness of God and his gracious love for us, and also to invite others to say, over 900 churches in and around the Chicagoland area right now are studying this same theme. People are billboards and radio advertisements and information's on all around us. But ultimately, if there's really a God of the whole universe, and he reveals himself in his character, wouldn't we as followers of Jesus want to invite as many people as we can to hear the good news of this gospel? Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that you indeed, by your grace and your goodness, have redeemed us and called us by name. Father, we acknowledge today that you, for followers of Jesus, we believe that you have don't only, not only exist and are the creator but you in creating all things have ultimately prepared them for us. And then because of your great love for us, seeing the sin that had become so pervasive in the world that yes, angered you because you are perfect, holy and good. It's a holy and righteous anger that you sent Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
maybe in the quietness of this moment, you might be open and ready to respond. Just say, Lord Jesus, if it's the prayer of your heart, pray it silently to the Lord. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. I trust and follow you. Father, I pray for those who may have just prayed that prayer that indeed they take that next step and share it with a friend who brought them or one of our pastors here. But for all of us who really believe that there is a God who is, he reveals himself and he calls us to tell others, would you burden us that this next week is a time we want to reach out? We want to build some relationships. We want to share the good news of the gospel so that you and your goodness, Lord Jesus, might redeem, might restore and might bring about salvation in the lives of men and women. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.